Hey, I'm Emery Parker, Interactive Editor with The Post and Courier, here each week to discuss the forces shaping the Palmetto State and provide the context that gives it meaning. This is Understand South Carolina. I'm here with my co-hosts, Brooks Brunson. Hello. And Kelly Poe. Hi. From The Post and Courier's web team. And we're here with reporter Caitlin Bird. Hi there. To discuss hate crimes in South Carolina, which is one of only five states with outlaws that specifically prohibit crimes motivated by prejudice against protected classes like race or religion. One of the most horrific hate crimes in modern history happened right here in Charleston, but if it weren't for federal laws, the perpetrator would not even be convicted of a hate crime. We're talking, of course, about the 2015 church shooting by a self-avowed white supremacist. Caitlin, can you start by telling us what makes something a hate crime as opposed to, say, murder? That's a great question. And in some ways, you kind of teed it off really well. The key term there is prejudice and bias. So that's sort of what can distinguish manslaughter from, you know, with manslaughter and murder, we're talking about intent and malice. And we're talking in this case, when we're talking about a crime versus a hate crime. We're talking about bias. And that's how the FBI defines it is whether or not there's that bias in terms of class. And when we're talking about class, we're not talking about middle class, upper class, lower class. We're talking about protected legal classes. So race, gender, gender identity, um, religious affiliation. So is it just bias or does it have to be motivated by that? But I, I, I'm sorry if that's a silly question, but uh, it does have to be motivated from my understanding. Um, I'm not a legal scholar, but um, my understanding is they have to be able to show that um, and prove that in a court of law. But um, in some cases, like with Dylan Roof and his murders here in Charleston, he left a manifesto. So it was very clear what his intent and his malice were and that they were racially motivated So that's a pretty clear cookie cutter trail. Um, We saw in Pennsylvania at the Tree of Life synagogue shooting that law enforcement has so far determined that that shooting was motivated based on the fact that these people were Jewish. So, yeah. So as Emory said, um, so South Carolina is only one of five states that doesn't have a hate crime law at all. Um, But a lot of states have hate crime laws that don't look like the hate crime laws in other states. So I think all of them, it's considered a hate crime to kill someone because they are black or whatever. But a lot of laws, it's not considered a hate crime to kill someone motivated by a bias against, you know, someone's LGBT status. Um, And I know we've seen here in Charleston some incidences where it at least appears to the outside. Um, Just recently, last year, we had a situation where a transgender transgender woman was assaulted um, outside of a nightclub because there is no law in South Carolina that designates something a hate crime. um, That person could was charged with assault and just assault. But it's interesting because when do the federal laws come into play? Obviously, in this instance, uh, federal hate crime laws were not implemented for this recent Charleston incident that. Kelly was talking about. But if you look at something on like a bigger scale, something like a manual, you know, why is it important to have um, these laws on the state level when there are times the federal law comes into place? Well, there's a couple of of responses to that question. Um, One of them is that sometimes the feds will step in, even when states are pursuing their own hate crime charges based on state law that they have in place. In South Carolina, we don't have a state-level hate crime law on the books. We don't have one at all. Um, We've had attempts to get a bill passed um, by State Representative Wendell Gilliard, whose district actually, we should note, includes Emanuel AME Church. But the feds can sometimes step in for hate crimes when they see it as something that is going to be of national importance or be, you know, a major 
major case. And so in the instance with Dylan Roof, the Fed stepped in um, for two reasons. One is that it was a major crime nationwide. It garnered a lot of national attention. And two, it was the de facto law, if you will. South Carolina not having state hate crimes that they could pursue charges on, it automatically went to the feds in this case. Um, and, And we should note that of the states that are having conversations about uh, hate crimes and whether or not to pursue them, that Indiana right now is in the throes of a big debate right now. So last month, uh, the Republican-controlled Indiana State Senate passed what they call Senate Bill 12, which would allow a judge to consider bias when determining the severity of a sentence. And that's why that bias piece is so important when we're talking about the differentiation between a crime versus a hate crime. But the thing is that you would think that it would be a really straightforward proposal. We're talking about protecting different classes of people who could be discriminated against and potentially have crimes committed against them, sex, gender, um, gender identity, religious affiliation, race. But recently in Indiana, um, lawmakers actually stripped those protections out of the bill's proposal, which has caused a huge outcry amongst groups. And even the Republican governor of the state was totally in favor of these protections being in place, but they have been stripped. And so some advocacy groups and lawmakers have said that this effectively gets rid of any teeth that this law could have, and it's not actually a good representation of a hate crime law for a state to have. Um, The SPLC, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks hate groups, has also come out against this edited or modified version of the bill that removed those specific protection clauses, saying that you know, in effect, you have words on a paper, but you don't have any real legal teeth when you don't protect those specific classes. So there's a lot of debate happening, you know, even outside of South Carolina about hate crime laws and what currently exists. At the federal level, it's not exactly a hate crime law because one already exists, but we've seen um, Senator Tim Scott join forces with Democrats like Senator Kamala Harris and Cory Booker to make lynching a federal hate crime. Um, and this is something that has tried and, and failed to pass so for right, centuries. Right now, lynching is not is not considered a federal hate crime. You know, in a case like Emmanuel, I'm, of course, it makes perfect sense. But in, you know, more, I guess, less high profile cases like a transgender woman being attacked because of her gender identity without actually dying or, or a, a big high profile incident or anything like that, it sounds like a state hate crime statute would be the only way that that would be prosecuted as such. Um, that's my understanding at this time is that a state hate crime law could address that. But again, the feds could make that determination um, as to whether or not to step in, even if it doesn't necessarily create a national splash. So it's it's one of those things where it seems to really be on a case by case basis. And for advocates who want to see hate crime laws, that's just not good enough. I mean, it may be possible. But it seems unlikely. I don't know. That's part of what is spurring a lot of this conversation is that when you have so many variables up in the air and left to the hands of a judge or your prosecutor, that then the law, which is something that should be very straightforward, concrete, has tests that you can measure whether it rises to these standards. When you don't have that at a state level, you're left with the federal. And at the same time, another point to make when we're talking about the justice system and when we're talking about hate crime in particular is a point that um, State Representative Wendell Gilliard pointed out to me when we were speaking about his hate crime bill, which has yet to move forward in South Carolina. It's died in committee the last couple of times that he's tried and failed to bring it uh, to fruition. Um, But one reason why he is pushing for this is not only because he's hearing it from his constituents, but secondarily, 
sometimes the feds have a lot on their case docket. And so by having a state hate crime law, you can potentially expedite those cases, which are of great community importance, in a way that the feds may not be able to based on what their caseload looks like. Let me ask kind of a basic question then. Like, what? why do hate crimes e- exist? What, what are they for? I, I can imagine a, a person out there listening might be thinking, you know, if you murder somebody or you assault somebody that's already illegal, wh- why does it matter what the motivation is? Is it a bigger charge than, say, an assault and battery charge, I guess? Pennsylvania is a really good example of this. Um, Pennsylvania, which is where the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting happened, they brought both federal charges against the man who is facing these charges for killing these Jewish individuals. And they also have their own state law, which carries a different weight. Mm -hmm. So it can be the difference in sentencing severity between whether someone is, you know, gets in a brawl on the street versus if they get on the brawl on the street because one man is black and one man is white because it changes the nature of the crime. But when we're talking about the legal implications of having a hate crime law versus not having one, or what's the difference between murder versus murder, that's a hate crime, it comes down to sentencing. Mm -hmm. It comes down to the severity of the crime. It raises this crime from one baseline criminal act to another, which calls for a stronger legal response. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's honestly essential. So you can see that there were more than 30 charges that were brought in Pittsburgh um, against this gentleman. And uh, because it it would be considered a hate crime, it comes with more severe punishment. Mm -hmm. And and it's something that it almost is a little bit of an esoteric question in some ways, because laws are intended to be a representation of what a society deems as acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Right. And to have a legal response that comes down harder is intended to show that not only are we not okay with you killing someone, we're not okay with you killing someone because you hold these ideas that say you, for some reason, think you're superior to them because of your religion, because Mm -hmm. of your race, because of your gender, your gender identity, your sexuality. We as a society are saying through our laws and legal system that that's not acceptable. Yeah, and I think there's also a, um, we were just talking about how there's differences between like federal law and state law and local law and how federal hate crime laws can come into play. And there's a historical context there where, you know, maybe in the past certain crimes maybe weren't, you know, prosecuted as vigorously in certain places as, you know, we wanted them to be because they happen to be racially motivated. And so creating like federal hate crime statutes gives the federal government an avenue to go in to maybe like a southern state where lynchings are a problem or, you know, or, or hate crimes are a problem and actually enforce that if the local authorities maybe aren't enforcing it as strongly as as people would would want them to. Yeah, I guess. How long have states had have any states had hate crime legislation on the state level? I mean, is that new? That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to it, but I can tell you that at the federal level that We've had a federal hate crime law since the late 60s. So we're talking post-civil rights. And I think that that's something that I was a little bit surprised about, to see that it took, in some ways, a civil rights movement to happen and occur for there to be this federal legal response to laws, um, excuse me, to crimes such as this. Right. I mean, I guess before the civil rights era, though, not everybody was seen as equal. These kind of crimes might have just not gotten prosecuted. 
Right. And even Paul. those that, that were prosecuted, we, we can see through newspaper articles and historical documents at the time that sometimes in certain states, some of them Southern, that people could be convicted or of a lynching, but basically walk away or not be found guilty by a jury of their peers. And I think that that's another important phrase that we have to remember is it's a jury of their peers. So, you know, the feds step in from time to time and there's a reason that there are federal laws and there are state laws. And it's just been very interesting to get more acquainted with the status of hate crime legislation and the fact that South Carolina is one of five that doesn't have one, despite its intense, deeply racial and racially complicated and sometimes um, upsetting uh, relationship with race. So the uh, just to FYI, the first ever like hate crime law in the United States actually was passed right after the Civil War. It was the Civil Rights Act of 1871, which uh, probably not something that is famous. But See, that surprises me. I mean, I mean, in South Carolina, I mean, there's still so much bad race relations here today that I, I don't know. I mean, it just surprises me that there would be something at the federal level that that long ago, like mm-hmm. I mean, right after the end of slavery. Yeah. Right? But uh, but Caitlin is, is absolutely right that the modern era of hate crime laws came into effect after the modern Civil Rights Act in the late 60s. On that note, I kind of want to move on to, you know, what do hate crimes look like? How are they happening? What types are happening? And how often are they happening today? Right. You know, I was looking at this report by Vox that said the hate crimes rose by 17 percent in 2017. You know, they kind of equate the rise in hate crimes to Trump's presidency, which that's a little editorializing. But, you know, Caitlin, you also reported uh, to be clear, this is the number of hate groups, not hate crimes. The number of hate groups across the nation has risen to 1,020, which is the highest level in two decades and a 30 percent increase in the past four years. And in South Carolina, it has increased for the third consecutive year in a row. Caitlin, do you kind of, what do you see is what sparked this rise in the amount of groups across the nation um, and in South Carolina? Well, it's a, it depends on who you ask in right. some ways. So, <laughs> so the people who I talk to who do research this work, um, such as the Southern Poverty Law Center, which we've mentioned briefly before, they, they do say yes in their opinion that the Trump administration has played a role in the rise. But I think that the point that often gets left out is that there was another marker that has actually been shown to correlate with the rise in hate groups, which is that the U.S. Census estimates that the United States will be minority white by 2045. So when you see the racial dispar- the, the racial makeup of the country change from majority white to minority white, there was a response that was elicited from these groups Um, that subscribe to hateful ideology. We're talking about white nationalists, white supremacy, which their core ideology is that the white race is the superior race, that white Europeans are the best. And so seeing their dominance threatened has resulted in, it's this sort of cause and effect. You find out that, that you're on top and that you're not going to be by 2045. Now there's a response. To see some of the language appearing in presidential speeches, to see Representative Steve King, for example, questioning in a New York Times interview why white supremacy and white nationalism is offensive. When you see those ideas reinforced on a national scale by people who are considered to be leaders, that is when it becomes dangerous, according to SPLC researchers, because it's reinforcing this idea that their ideas are not actually fringe 
but that they are accepted by mainstream. Right. They're very fine people on both sides. Right. right? And as, so, as the president said. Right. And so in that case, that's where the real concern seems to be stepping in right now is that it's it, it would be false to say that Trump is the sole reason for the rise in Absolutely. hate groups. And I want to be very clear that we are not saying that. But it is important to note that actions and words have consequences and they have consequences when we're thinking about audiences. And within these audiences, there are people who subscribe to these hateful ideologies that they are superior or that other races, other groups, other types of people who may be different from them, who may subscribe to different lifestyles, who may have different sexual orientation and gender preferences, that those people are somehow lesser. So when those ideas are reinforced on a national scale, it sends a message that this is okay. The one thing I will throw in here, because a lot of this conversation, you know, it is depressing to talk about hate crimes and hate groups, because in 2019, I don't know about you, but I thought that by the time I was a grown up, that I wouldn't be talking about this anymore. I thought that hate (laughs) crimes were going to be something that belonged to the generations of my parents and my grandparents and not a part of my everyday present life. So one positive thing that we can take forward from this is that on the flip side, the SPLC says that lawmakers and other people in positions of power, so this could be even within your communities, you don't have to be a congressperson to be making a difference. If you're standing up to hate, it can have a suppressive effect on these hate groups because, again, it's another way of sending a signal that this is not acceptable. And that's one way that we can kind of circle back because the law, having a state-level law, is sending a message as South Carolinians to say, this is not acceptable. Yeah, you know, you know, kind of thinking back to the, the Trump stuff, I mean, I'm not sure I was familiar with that information about that white people could be no longer the majority by 2045. That's pretty wild. And I, you kind of wonder, though, if it's like a cause and effect thing. Like, it's not Trump. Trump's not creating these hate groups. But when the election happened, these hate groups created Trump in some way. No, no, that, that, but you see, it's a cause and effect yeah, thing, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, I think, I think you got to push back a little bit on, because uh, obviously, like, half of the country voted for Trump and, like, half the country, right. you know, so we're, we're definitely not trying to say that. But but I do think, like, what you're getting at is there's, like, a feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. Right? So like, these people voted for Trump. I mean, that's right, he, 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 whatever, whether he means, lose those voters. Right, like, whether he means to or not, like, when he says certain things, and you can just go on, on online, you can go to Stormfront, you can go to certain subreddits on the internet, certain corner, like, Gab, and you can see, like, when, when he and other political leaders say certain things or or sometimes what's most important is what they don't say what they decline to say people take these as endorsements whether or not they're meant as endorsements they are taken that way exactly. and that creates feeds into this like feedback loop of you know coarsening the the attitudes and what's acceptable you know to say in public Caitlin, um, in your recent story, which was about the report from the Southern Poverty Law Center, you reported that there are 17 um, active hate groups in South Carolina right now. Can you tell me a little bit about, like, who they are and what they do? Yeah, absolutely. So some are statewide and others have specific chapters kind of dotted throughout the state. Um, Interestingly, I think folks would be surprised to learn that we do have a high number of black nationalist groups. So normally South Carolina has sort of a reputation, um, maybe part and parcel because of what happened here in Charleston with Dylan Roof and his white supremacist ideology. A lot of people would think that 
a southern state like South Carolina would be a lot of neo-Confederate groups, a lot of white nationalist groups, a lot of KKK groups. But in actuality, there's all kinds of hate, um, whether it's black nationalist groups or there are some neo-Confederate groups that are listed. There are also things like general hate. It actually shows just how diverse it can be to hate and that it's not something (laughs) that's limited to diverse hate. There's diverse hate. So there is diversity in hatred. Um, What is general hate? So general hate is something that um, the SPLC defines, and and it's something where it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into one neat ideology. So it's, for example, the redneck shop in Lawrence, South Carolina, used to be on this hate group list, is no longer a shop that is in operation, from my understanding. And it was listed as a general hate group based on some of the items that were sold in the store and also based on the fact that the owner of that shop at the time was a known white supremacist and talked about it. So we've, we, we're talking a lot about SPLC right now. And I feel mm-hmm. like we've, we've got to, like every time we do any kind of SPLC story, I feel like there's always that one person, the one tweet that's like, oh, well, why do we trust them? Uh, my attitude with the SPLC, and I'm curious, Caitlin, what yours is, is that, yeah, there, there's, it's not perfect. There's some subject, some subjectivity in, in the work that they're trying to do, but it, you know, it's, it's basically methodical and it's generally pretty credible and it's better than nothing. It, what's your take on that? Well, I think we use the best information that we have at any given time. Um, and it is important to note that they're not the only group that tracks hate groups like the Anti-Defamation League is also keeping tabs. The SPLC has been doing so in a very specific way for now more than a decade. So we can really see um, point in time changes. And the SPLC admits, you know, in some ways that it's it's a little bit left-leaning, but it is open about how it arrives at its groups um, that they choose to list on their hate hate map. Right. I mean, like, just because it's su- subjective, it, it is consistent. And so as long as it's consistent, like, it is still useful data. Yeah. Know? And they do have a specific definition for what constitutes a hate group. And we were sort of starting to pick at that a little bit just a few minutes ago, just talking about how a store could be listed as a hate group. So we have this data on hate groups, but what about actual hate crimes? Um, Do we have good data on that? Do we know how often those are happening? Well, the FBI does keep track of that on an annual basis. And the latest available data shows that nationwide there were 7,175 hate crimes uh, that were committed. But as news outlets have noted, including ProPublica, There is some things that we still don't know about hate crimes. Hate crimes are often underreported. Sometimes it's because there are only 12 states that require police to learn how to identify and investigate hate crimes properly. And in some states, police are required to learn about hate crimes and how to investigate them, but they may only have a 30-minute seminar about it. So in some ways, hate crimes are ubiquitous, and yet there's so much that we still don't know about them. The Justice Center estimates that there could actually be upwards of more than 200,000. But again, without the data, it's hard to track. It's an underreported crime. And it's also a, a challenging crime. How do you prove? It does seem that in some ways, hate crimes and hate crime reporting faces some challenges not dissimilar to those of sexual assault and harassment. There's just not as strong of an infrastructure around the enforcement of these crimes compared to some that might seem more straightforward, quote unquote. So in South Carolina, um, I know that it's been brought up to have hate crime legislation before. 
and it's never passed. Can you tell me a little bit about what that fight looks like and where do where does this legislation usually die? It's been a fight that's been going on since before 2015. Um, so Wendell Gilliard has tried to push forward this legislation. The first one of the first iterations was he tried to make it a hate crime to assault people who are homeless. So he tried to make homelessness a class, a protected class. Um, it died in subcommittee. Um, right now, a lot of these bills have died in the Judiciary Committee, which effectively means that it never gets to see a light of day on the House floor. So you're not going to see the public back and forth between lawmakers. You're not going to see people trying to just take time at the podium and filibuster their way out of it. You haven't really seen lawmakers have to take a definitive public stance on it because it dies in somewhat of a quieter way. It doesn't mean that the public couldn't go to a subcommittee or a committee meeting or watch it online. But the fact of the matter is it just doesn't get the glitz and glamour of actually being considered in a full way. And sometimes it's not even about taking a political risk. It's just political priorities that send something forward versus they don't. I brought up that this bill has been discussed since before 2015 because I think oftentimes that people might have wondered, well, if if there was a time for South Carolina to push forward hate crime legislation, would it not have been in the aftermath of the shooting at Mother Emanuel Amy Church? But then I talked to Jennifer Barry Hawes, who's actually written a book about what happened at Emanuel, and we were discussing how in the wake of that awful tragedy that there were a couple of really big revelations that happened that kind of dominated the public and the political debate at the time. One of them being the picture that surfaced of Dylan Roof brandishing a Confederate battle flag, and the second being the news that we would find out that Dylan Roof had purchased his gun after a three-day waiting period came and went when his federal background check didn't go through or wasn't completed, which allowed him to buy the gun, which then a month later allowed him to walk into Mother Emanuel and kill these nine black parishioners. Um, So then the focus shifted to what became known as the Charleston loophole. So at the time, there were these two big ideological debates, one in the sphere of gun reform and the other in the sphere of this symbol in South Carolina and its presence on the state house grounds. And at the time, there was a little bit of discussion about the hate crime law that doesn't exist in South Carolina. And it was more of a, oh, that's interesting. Didn't realize South Carolina didn't have a hate crime law. At the end of the day, it seems odd that a politician would be against hate crime laws. Like, that can't look good, right? Like, I'm anti-hate crime legislation. Like, what, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's why it dies in committee then. Mm, Maybe. No one wants to publicly be the guy who doesn't like hate crime laws. (laughs) Anyway. Brooks, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? I do. I learned a lot about the whole, like, federal versus state level crimes things always kind of confused me and I am no longer confused. Emory, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? I do. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was really surprised to learn how many active hate groups there are in South Carolina, but that actually we're maybe doing a little bit better than our neighboring states. Yeah, Georgia, no good. Yeah. Oh, I'm Georgian. So that's... <laughs> Kelly, do you better understand South Carolina? Yeah, I think I do. I think I understand that... Uh, Hate crime legislation is uh, probably not likely to come pretty soon. I'd say that's a fair assessment. I wouldn't hold your breath for it. Not going to do that. 
Right. Well, Caitlin, uh, thank you for coming on our show today. And uh, how can how can our listeners follow you online? They can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Mary Caitlin Bird, and it's spelled C-A-I-T-L-I-N-B-Y-R-D. And you can also sign up for the Palmetto Politics newsletter. Oh, yeah. That comes a... to your inbox Monday through Friday. Excellent newsletter. Highly recommend it. Postandcourier.com slash politics newsletter. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later. 